Good morning. May the grace and the peace of our Lord be upon you. And as we say in Brazil, bom dia, which is good morning anyway. It's always good to be back and uh, it, we want to thank Doug and Donna for gener generosity towards our family. Uh, we enjoy to spend time with them. We also had a great time visiting with Pastor David and his wife. I don't remember if it was yesterday or something like that. Uh, I think it was Friday, right? Yeah, Friday. Yeah, we had a good time. We really enjoy. And it's always good to be here. Later on this afternoon, we will have a chance to share a little bit about my in-laws. They're doing very, very well. You will see a picture of them, Willis and Neuza. Uh, what people say in Brazil is that when I retire, Willis will be my replacement. And it looks like it will be the case. Um, my wife Julie is there, beautiful as usual. My son Leo and my daughter Melina is spending time with the kids. And we'll be going this, uh, we'll be here, of course, uh, after lunch. And then uh, we're gonna head back after the second service um, to Columbia, Missouri because I borrow a car that I must return this afternoon at some point. Uh, a gentleman who is lending us the car, he has to go to St. Louis tomorrow morning, so I don't want him to be really concerned, where is this Brazilian guy with my car? Uh, somewhere in Kansas. I don't know if you heard of the a legend, it's called The Legend of the Lost Key. That was presented by a uh, Unite Kingdom television channel called BBC. BBC presented this as a television show in the 90s and the plot was about a twin, Mark and Lisa. One day they found out that their uncle, uh, Mr. George, was not a regular guy. He was not a common man. He was an extraordinary person because he was the keeper of a box and that box was the key to a fantastic world however someone stole the box and the world was in danger danger because creatures from this world would come and maybe kidnap children destroy families and the society as we know of course, we do not believe in fairy tales, in legends, or anything like that. But I do believe that this legend tells something about us. Because we are the keepers, we are the guardians of a very, very important key. Key for the life of man and humanity, which is the very word of God. So you might look at the mirror sometimes and think that you're not someone special, and I tell you, you are. Not because of something in you, but because of the grace of God bestowed upon you and me. As the years go by, I know we look to the mirror and we can't barely recognize ourselves. You know, when I was very young, just beginning in ministry, and believe me, that's kind of awkward, but that happened in Brazil, people would come to me and they would say, did you know that you look like Clark Kent? Clark Kent from Kansas. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting. And then years went by, 
at the end of one service, a young couple came to me and they asked if I had watched this television show by the name Smallville. I haven't had. And they said, well, it's about Superman. I thought they would say, you look like Clark Kent. And then they said, you look like Lex Luthor's father. <laughs> I said, wow, I used to look like Clark Kent. Now I do not look even like Lex Luthor. I look like his father. <laughs> but let me tell you this, no matter what you see there in the mirror, Thank you. I'll buy lunch today. Oh, it's free today. Praise the Lord. <laughs> well, no matter what you see and what you're struggling with, because of God's grace, you are an extraordinary person. And that's exactly what Paul wants to communicate to the church in Ephesus. So please turn your Bible to the book of Ephesus, uh, chapter 1. We're going to read uh, beginning verse uh, first, verse, first 1, and we're going to read through verse 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. And here's what says the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What a beautiful passage. It is so profound, and of course it goes beyond the scope of what we can address this morning. But I would like to call your attention to three expressions as we begin considering the Word of God this morning. He called these people uh, saints. He called them the faithful ones in Christ and children of God. Now, if this is not a special, I don't know what would be special. You see, they are living in this uh, city called Ephesus, and we will address this in a minute. But then as Paul introduced himself in this letter, he called their attention and said, you are faithful one in Christ. You are a saint of God. You are a child of God. Now this is really special. Let's consider for a moment the word saint. Actually, it appears twice in the text. First, it calls saint in English and in English called holy. In Greek, we know it is the same word. It is a translation from a Hebrew word, kadesh, that appeared twice here, which is uh, uh, doxa here in, in this passage, describing the glory of God upon us. And we, we look to this hagios, hagios the, the, the holiness that God pour upon us. 
and we understand why His glory will flourish in our lives. But what is a saint? What comes to your mind when you hear this word, saint? Because saint and holy is exactly the same thing. What comes to your mind? Well, a technical definition people would give is a saint is someone who is uh, separate, right? But that is not very practical, I think. Uh, okay, what does that exactly mean? When we go to the Old Testament, there was a temple. This temple was holy. And the idea was there was no other temple like that one. It was a saint building, a sanctuary. There was no other building like that one. In the Old Testament, they would have priests. And the priests would be holy, saints, because there would not be other priests like them. There was no other priesthood holy or saint like that one. So when Paul is calling this church, and actually all of us, as saints, he is saying that there's no other people like us on the face of the earth. Now, they were in Ephesus. You guys are in Waverly or in Ottawa. I am in Mogi das Cruzes, São Paulo, Brazil. It doesn't matter. Any place where we are, if the grace of God is upon us, there is no people like us. And he goes on and say that God is their father. In the Old Testament, God is called father about 15 times. And is a metaphor as the provider, the protector, the, the one who is strong in the house. In the New Testament, God is called Father over 200 times. Isn't that special? The grace of God is upon us and He sees us as His saints. He sees us as people, as no other people on the face of the earth. He sees us as His children. A way of uh, understanding that today in the 21st century would be extraordinary. We are extraordinary people. No matter where we are, we are not just regular guys walking around, lollygagging. We are children of God. Isn't that amazing? So, as we know, they were there in Ephesus. From history, we know Ephesus was a very, very important city. It used to be called the New York of Asia, ancient Asia. Now it would be Turkey. And in the past, before Paul wrote this letter, they had a harbor that brought prosperity. They had a main road called the Silk Road. But by the time when Paul wrote this letter, the harbor was gone. The road was gone. But Thousands of people would go to Ephesus. Why? Why they would go there? Well, uh, we know that there was a theater with 25,000 seats there. Gigantic. Thousands of people. Why? The reason was uh, religion motivation. There was one goddess. The Romans would call her Diana. The Greeks would call her Artemis. 
And they would come there because she was the goddess, supposedly the goddess of the hunters. So she would protect the hunters. She would be the goddess of the war. So she would protect the soldiers. She was the goddess of prosperity, fertility, birth. So if you want glory, power, be successful in any given way, where you should go to ask blessings? Ephesus. So thousands of people would go there. They had this wonderful big building that was her temple with uh, hundreds of uh, pillars and columns made in marble with precious stone and gold. It was an amazing thing. They call one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And they believed she uh, fell from the sky. We know that it was the remain portion of a meteorite they made an idol, they made an idol from it, and they worshipped in that temple. And I don't know how to say that in a proper English, so forgive me if I'm saying something that I'm not supposed to. Uh, the priestess that served in that temple, they were religious prostitutes. It was a terrible place. Now Paul presented a contrast between Diana and Jesus Christ, the truly living Lord of all universe. Please open your Bible in chapter 4. Let's take a look at verse 8 to 10. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So here's what we have. We have a contrast. They believe Diana fell from the sky. And Paul said, okay, we serve a Lord that came from heaven and who ascended back to heaven. And if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, you will see that positionally he put all of us with him in heavenly places. So if sometimes you're at the hospital, actually you are positioned in Christ in heavenly places. No matter what kind of struggle you're facing or temptations, you are in heavenly places with Christ. He came from heaven and he's back to heaven. Now, this was a sharp contrast with the misunderstanding about faith that that community had. And Paul was saying, you guys are different. Because you see, the things that would come out from that kind of behavior, worshiping that false god, was idolatry, fornication, promiscuity, lying, thiefings, all kinds of evil things would happen as a byproduct of worshiping an idol. And Paul was saying, you were there, you were there in this society, but you do not belong to this society. You are special. You are extraordinary. You're a saint. You're a child of God. So that would take us to something that would be a transition in Paul's writing in this letter which I call the walking style. If we are different, we should have a different walking style. We should talk different, 
We should do things different. And I believe there is a, a British writer um, who is an expert on what they call behaviorism, the way people behave and walk and do things. And he said he can predict it how is a person just by observing how they walk. He said, just by observing, I know their health condition. Now, his name is uh, Peter Collett, Dr. Peter Collett. He said, just by observing, I know how are their moods, their personality. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Just someone observing how you walk and they can tell all of that about you. Now, I don't know if that's true. They say, these guys like Peter Collett, that there's about 10 walking styles, you know? I don't know if this really works, but I tell you this, in the New Testament, Bible address different ways that people would walk, more than 95 times. And in the book of Ephesians, we find the same expression, walking or walking style, the way we walk, at least nine times. So let's consider uh, rapidly some of those styles here, eight times. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 says this, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore I testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of Gentile walk, in the futility of their mind. Chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fool, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So I don't know if there's 10 different walking styles. I do know the Bible presents us with two different walking styles. One is the evil way of walking in life, which basically is a figure of speech to describe our lifestyle, the sphere of our existence, how we do life. So one is evil and the other one is godly. We just finished reading the evil one. Let's take a look on the godly walking style. 210. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of, Lord, of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and giving himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Chapter 5, verse 15. See then, you walk circumspectly, not as fool, but as wise. There's an evil way of living life out. There is a godly way of living life out. And if we are saints of God, and if we are children of God, we are supposed to walk in a godly way. That's what Paul is saying. 
And what Paul is doing here, and Paul does that most of the time in his writings, first he's going to give his theology. For Paul, theology is a very practical thing. It will affect every part of our lives. For Paul, doctrine is something that should change our minds. In fact, the word repentance, uh, that Brother Kirk this morning was uh, presenting some ideas for us, and very, very important ones, is before you change your behavior, it must change your mind. Metanoia is the word. It changes your mind, and because it changes your mind, it will change your behavior. So, he's given us this beautiful picture that we are a special people. And then he goes on and says, well, there are two ways of living out life. Evil ways and godly ways. Those who are following the footsteps of Diana or following the evil ways... Those who are following Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are walking, or should be walking, in godly ways. You see, theology, what we believe, will affect how we behave. Let me give you an illustration. When I was just a young fellow in Brazil, a boy, just a young boy, uh, vacation time would come. And uh, my father would announce that we would have a chance to see the ocean, go to the coast and see the beach and enjoy a sunny day. And it was incredible because every time he would say something like that, it would rain. My grandmother, she was very superstitious. So she would come to me and say, Leandro, here's what you have to do. Throw some salt on the roof of your home, and the sun will come shining. And sure enough, I would throw all the salt that I could. And then I would come to her and say, Grandma, it's not working. She said, wow, throw some soap. And then I would throw away all the soap I could find at home. And later on, I would have to explain to my parents what I have done and never worked. But you see, even if never worked, because I believed, I walked in such a way. I would do things as I believed. I would throw salt on the roof. I would throw, I would throw uh, soap on the roof because I believe. And that's exactly what Paul is bringing to us. He's bringing this idea that if we believe, that the grace of God is upon us, if we believe that we are not just a regular people following the path of this world, or as they would be doing, following the path of Diana, seeking power and glory and, and prosperity here. No, this is not our land. We're going to heaven. In fact, positionally speaking, we are there. You see, they were in Ephesus, physically speaking, but from God's standpoint, they belonged to heaven. My friends, uh, I was visiting another church recently here in America, and I said something like this. I said, you know, heaven is not here. So that's why we have disappointments, we have frustrations, we have pain, because this is a reminder to us. 
that this side of eternity is not heaven. Well, a friend of mine who is now living here in America and who is Brazilian, he came to me after the service and said this. He said, well, that's true, Leandro, but United States of America, it's closer than heaven than Brazil. <laughs> Maybe he's right. I mean, the country is more organized. The country is, you know, you have more security, you have more stability. But you, my friends and brothers in Christ, you know this is not heaven. And that's why there's pain and suffering, hardship. And that's why we were praying for people just before the service. And they're enduring uh, hardships. This is not heaven. But we are children of God. We're saints of God. And we are going to our heavenly place. That should be an encouragement. Now, if we believe that, you see, if we believe that, that we are different. We will respond to our society in a different manner. So Paul presents these two ways of dealing with life. And then he's going to give us a very practical, practical instruction on how we apply that. And that's what I would like to do this morning. So please open your Bible now in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Actually, I could give you some more ideas on how Paul gives us this contrast. Like uh, uh, there was the Diana temples there, but he calls us God's sanctuary. He calls us the body of Christ. So you see, beautiful, beautiful ways of addressing God's people, uh, even, even in an evil society. Now in chapter 4, beginning in, chap in verse 25, we will see that Paul has very practical ideas on how... Our, our understanding would affect our daily living. So, so the first word I would like to give you is truth. Truth. Chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, put in a way, lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And again, uh, Brother Kirk was addressing that uh, in Sunday school. We didn't uh, prepare together, but it's quite interesting that he was addressing this. Uh, to speak the truth, and you know, the language of the New Testament is Greek. Uh, I, I wish it was Portuguese. Uh, you guys probably like English, but <laughs> it was Greek. And the tense here is a present, indicative, active. Present, imperative, active. What does that mean? It should become a, a, a habit in our lives to be truthful. It should be a part of what we do to be truthful. Um, and this is not an easy thing. And each country has its own way of dealing with this thing. Uh, but it should be part of us. It is so hard because sometimes you don't want to be offensive. Uh, you want to be nice and kind, and that's good. But what is lying? Well, lying is not only what you say or, or how you say, but lying is when you're, you're taking someone to believe in something that is not factual. You know what I mean? Uh, let me give you an example. This manager, uh, he had a, a, a guy working for him. He was the laziest laziest employee he had. But this uh, lazy guy came to him one day and said, you know, I'm about to get a new job, but
but I need a letter, a referral. Would you give me a referral? Manager thought, well, I really want to get rid of this guy. So a referral would be good. But if I give a referral, a truthful one, they're not going to hire him. So he thought with himself, how can I write a referral without lying? And here's what he wrote. You will be a lucky man if you can't get him work for you. <laughs> you will be a lucky man if you get him working for you. Because he's a lazy man. He's not going to work. So you see, even though he kind of found a way of communicating, the purpose of the letter was to take someone to believe in something that wasn't factual. It wasn't real. So the letter is a lie. Uh, this man went to a counselor, and this is a true story. His wife thought he was seeking and pursuing counseling because he had an ad addiction to uh, fruity, juicy gum. You know, fruity, juicy gum. So he said, I need counseling. And he went to the counselor. The counselor thought it was strange why someone would come because he's addicted to fruity, juicy gum. But anyway. And, and eventually, the counselor asked him, is there anything else? Well, there's a little problem. I do some gambling online. Oh, but do you mean you, you put money on it? Yeah, some poker and other things like that. And the counselor asked, what is the size of the hole? He said, $130 thousand dollars and he asked the counselor should I tell my wife what do you think you see you see how people create a false reality and Paul gives us a reason why we should be truthful he says this in verse 16 from whom the whole body for chapter 4 verse 16 from whom the whole body join and knit together by what, what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does it share cause growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love you see Paul understands that a church is a body now a body in scripture is a metaphor for a profound relationship. Like husband and wife are called one flesh. As brothers in Christ, we are one body. If my brain starts sending false messages to my body, what's going to happen? Well, if it tells me that something is cold when it's hot, I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to hurt the body. Eventually, the body will die. That's why in a marital relationship, husband and wife, they should never, ever have any lies. Transparency. That's why Genesis have this image, powerful image, that they were both naked and they were not ashamed. Transparency. You can be open to someone. What a blessing is to be in a relationship where you can be truthful. Now, uh, let me tell you this, that I think, yes, we should tell the truth in a proper manner, in love, in a proper context. So here's some ideas that I always recommend people. When they have something tough to, to tell someone, 
they should go, first of all, to a public place. Maybe a cough shop, I don't know, because people have a tendency to behave better in public settings. Don't try to address just in your living room. You might have some broken chairs there. Go somewhere else, but be truthful, be truthful. Sometimes you need a mediator, like in Matthew chapter 18. Someone who will help you to address the reality of your life. A counselor, a pastor, a mature Christian that will come along. But whatever we do, we must be truthful. Why? Because we're saints of God, we're children of God, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, we're the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's move on. I'm glad I have one amen. That's good. Uh, time is flying fast, so let me move on. The second word I would like to give is temperament. Temperament. The first one is truth, the second one is temperament. Chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. I found very interesting that here in America, the new uh, NIV, New International Version, translate this verse, if I'm not mistaken here, uh, by, in your anger, do not sin. But actually, in the Greek text, this is a command. Be angry. Well, why is that when most of biblical passages would tell us to avoid this kind of thing? Because there is what we call righteous indignation. And the world would be a poorer place if we would not respond to things that are wrong. You see, there are things that they are wrong and should be addressed. And if we lose this, it's like having an elephant in our living room and say, well, I don't see it. It's smashing your furniture. I don't see it. It's destroying your home. I don't see it. We have to face things. And there are times that there's a proper place for proper anger. We see that with Jesus. Remember that Jesus addressed the Pharisees and the Sadducees or with the people selling things in the temple? He responded with righteous indignation. So it's the same thing. Like uh, not long ago, a magazine in Brazil wrote about the Word of God and said a bunch of lies. I was anger and I wrote them a letter. It was a nice letter though. Very polite, but firm and out of my righteous indignation. So let me give you some examples that I believe would be helpful as we deal with this. First of all, when you be angry, be angry with your own sin first. Don't, you know, just don't take light. Be angry. Say, you know, this is wrong in my life and I don't like it. Lord, help me. I want to get rid of this in my life. Be angry with your sin. Don't take it easy. Say, oh, that's fine. Uh, deal with. Allow the image of God, of His righteous, come inside of you and say, this is wrong, Leandro. Come on. You've got to change this. So be angry. Be angry. Sorry. Uh, second, learn with your anger. If there's something that tells things about our personality and our preference, it's our anger. What does make you anger? Do you remember when God came to Cain and he asked him this very question? 
Why are you angry? We should ask ourselves why I am angry. Because sometimes we are angry about our preference, which is not a righteous anger. Make sense? Uh, Matthew Henry has an incredible line. He said, if, you, if, you, if we would be angry and not to sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. Is it sinful? So you see, as we deal with our anger, uh, we will learn about us, where we are. So there's a purpose for, to be, for our anger in life. And finally, take your anger to God. Don't swallow just it. It's going to give you ulcers. Is that a word in English? Ulcers in your stomach if you just hold in. No, don't do that. Take to God. There are many psalms that we call imprecatory psalms. Psalms that will ask God to pour out His justice. Lord, I'm not going to do anything about it. But here's the problem. Here's what's going on. And the good Lord will do something about it. So you see, anger will take us even in a good prayer time. And it's going to be a loud prayer, I'm sure. Transferring is another word I would like to give you. I think I still have a few minutes, right? Okay. If you can give me five minutes, please. Ten minutes right there. Twenty right there. I like this young fellow there. There you go. Two more minutes there. That's good. Thank you. Um, transferring is another word. Uh, chapter 4, verse 28. Let him who is stole is still no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Stills in this passage is klepto in Greek, where we have the word kleptomaniac, and it means that someone taking uh, from another person without permission. Every time we take from someone without permission, we are stealing. And I found very interesting that in the Greek, this is a noun. So what Paul was describing is that maybe people who were in the church is still practicing this. It's strange, isn't it? And that's why he was exhorting them. Guys, we're saints. We're the building of the Holy Spirit. We're the body of Christ. We're children of God. Let's quit stealing. Now I know we don't have this problem here in America. But did you know that statistics tells us that the item number one that people would take without permission, in other words, they will steal from someone, it's pen. And 70% of people who work in office, they said someone stole their pen. And they recognize, 40% recognize that it was a colleague in the work. In Brazil, when we lend a pen, we take the, uh, how do you call a uh, cap? You know, the one that closed the cap, cap, that's how you call it. You take a cap, you give just a pen. Because it's hard to steal a pen without a cap. So they return it to you. So you see, a little thing, another thing people do take from others is a spot in line. You know, there's a Walmart line and then someone is kind of distracted. Just jump in. Or in the traffic. This is a form of stealing. This called my attention, hotel amenities. People, when they're traveling, they like a very comfortable place to stay at, like, you know, hot shower, good bed, and, and all of that. But some people want to take the comfort of a hotel to their homes. 
So they take towels, they take shampoos and everything they can, you know, put in a purse and take with them. Uh, I was amazing, amazed that some people <laughs> would do that with uh, restaurants. They take straws, napkins, condiments. And the guy who was given an interview, he's a CEO of a, uh, and actually my friends here in America, um, is a chain of restaurants. He said it cost them $900,000 a year. Little things that people take with them. Now, maybe we do not do these things, and praise God if we don't. And if we do, we better learn and quit on doing. But there are other things that are not as clear, like time. Sometimes we are stealing time from people. In my culture, it's terrible, but I tell you, we do that all the time. We steal time from people. You know, we said like, okay, seven will be there. And we got an hour later. And we take from people one hour. But sometimes as parents or in family, we are also stealing time by the way we use our electronics. You know, a child wants attention and we're playing or replying messages on our phone. Our body's there, our mind is not. We're stealing something. Sometimes we're stealing even properties in our home. Did you know that? I had this couple, they came to me for a counseling session. And he said, I want to divorce my wife. I said, why? She ate, this is a true story, she ate my uh, cream cheese. I saved for next morning breakfast. When I went to the fridge, it wasn't there. She ate my cream cheese. Yeah. Some people complain about donuts. I saved that donut and she ate my donut. I know, it's a little thing. But you see, if we follow through these ideas, our relationship will improve. It sounds more like a good manner kind of thing. If you're going to eat their donut, let them know. Ask, can I eat your donut? Because if it's going to bother you, I'll bring you a box of donuts. You see, uh, because it creates a... a, a a relationship that becomes acid. So what are the kind of things that we might, even not thinking about, taking from someone else? Julie and I, we work through this. And by the way, when I use my family as an illustration, I have their permission. Never try to use your family as an illustration without their permission. It's a bad idea. I tried before. Now I have permission. Uh, we would go like, a, uh, we have what you call, uh, kind of like a garage, uh, garage selling. Garage sell? Garage, garage sell. You know, you're selling used things, and we would do that in Brazil in church and ministry to fundraise some of our ministry. And I would get there and I would look and say, wow, I have a hat just like that. Interesting. I have a shirt just like that. I have a tie just like that. And I would buy it back. And it was mine. <laughs> my wife was selling my stuff. I mean, she had a good reason. She's more generous than I am. Oh, but we have fights over this. Why? Because we had to carry on a conversation. So now we sit together and she explained to me, do you really want that shirt? Come on, look at that. You look like a clown with that shirt. Okay, sell it. You see... We have to respect what we have in our homes, with our children, space, 
and belongings. Well, let's move on. So the, um, another word I would like to give you is the word talk. Talk. Verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Corrupt is saprus in Greek, comes from sipo, which means to decay, putrefy. In Brazil, we have a fruit, it's called guava. Do you have guava here? Yeah? Okay, guava is a good fruit. A lot of seeds, but tastes good. But there's one problem with guava. It gets worms, you know, worms very easily. So most of kids would not want to eat guava when they get. Mom will lie to them and say, if you eat guava, you will become beautiful. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. <laughs> you see, but the picture Paul is using here, when he used this word corrupt, is that one. He wants us to see like a, a fruit that has been spoiled, that has worms, a fish that you would throw away because it's not good for your health, a beef that is it's spoiled, it's not good, it's stinking, it's not good for your health. He's saying there are words that we say that are like that. And we should avoid them. Now, some people would take this like and apply, oh, we should not say jokes and all that. I understand, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the kind of conversation we carry with one another. How we speak to one another. What we say to our children. Do we call them names? Do we put them down? How do we treat our brother in Christ? What kind of words we use? The idea here is to edify. What is edify? It's to put it up. It's to help people to grow up. Not to put it down. Not to humiliate people by the words we use. And we must be careful. There are two um, uh, mythologies. One is a Greek mythology and another one is a Jewish mythology. One is called Pygmalion Effect. Which is, uh, there was this man, his name was Pygmalion, he lived in an island, he built a statue of a woman. And he was so careful in the way he did, that she turned into a woman and he married her. From that mythology, people got this idea of self-fulfilling prophecies. In other words, if you keep saying truthful, good things to people, they will become. Just like, think about Paul. He will always, at least most of the time, begin his letters with truthful, edifying, good statements. Like, you're saints. You, you are children of God. You're the faithful ones. Right? That's how he would begin. Not putting them down, and then he would correct whatever was wrong. But using words that are truthful to help people understand and grasp what they are. So, there's another one, which is uh, what they call, this is a Jewish mythology, it's golem effect, golem effect, it's an ugly creature. The Jewish used to say, if we keep calling people bad, calling them names, saying bad things about them, they will become as such. My friends, what kind of language do we have? How do we treat one another? How we talk to one another? This lady in Brazil, 
she divorced and I asked her why and she said because my husband I got tired he was calling me all the time true story again fat belly you don't call someone fat belly but he was he got to that point so you see it seems like it's not happening but it's happened all the time what kind of words we use? How do we inspire one another? How do we encourage one another? Jesus used this kind of example in Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, 17 and 18, when he talks about different fruit, good fruit, bad fruit. In Matthew 13, 48, he talks about distinction between fish, good fish and bad fish. One is spoiled, it's putrefied. What goes in, my friends, it will go out. So if we want to correct the words, we must spend time getting in from God's word so we will speak what we will bring edification to one another. Well, my last word, actually I have to use two and apologize, I wish I could have only one, is taking back. See, if, if first transferring is the idea, as I mentioned, that okay, we're not stealing, but that's not enough. I have to use the resources to bless other people. It's transferring God's blessing to other people. Now, okay, I'm silent. That's not enough. I have to speak words that will bring edification, how I talk. And I'll take it back. What I mean by that? There's an American song that says uh, something like that. The reason why I stand, the answer lies in you. You hung to make me strong, though my praise was few. When I fall and bring your name down, but I have found in you a heart that pleads forgiveness, replacing all these thoughts of painful memory. But I know that your response will always be, I'll take you back. That's what God does to us as we come to Him with a broken heart for the things we've done. He takes us back. Verse 32, chapter 4 says, and be kind to one another, then heart, forgiving one another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. English Standard Version, the word forgiven, is there 134 times. NASB, NASB, I think you call NASB, the word was translated 119 times. NIV, 150 times forgiveness. And King James, 119. No matter how we make the, the math here, to forgive is presented hundreds of times in the Bible. And we must learn how to deal with. In John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus used a Greek word there, tetelestai, which means paid in full. Paul said, you should forgive as God forgave, past tense, you. What does that mean? When we have to confess our sins in the future, right? So what does that mean? He forgave us. Well, we could call that a form of prevenient forgiveness. In other words, he paid in full. On his side, the problem is solved. First John, it's a book about eternal life and fellowship. When you offend your Heavenly Father, or me, when I offend Him, we don't quit in being His child, but we break the fellowship. 
as we repent and come to Him, the fellowship is back and we enjoy the relationship we have with Him. So when, when Paul says, forgive as God forgave you, and I, I wish I could address that more properly, but Pastor David can do sometime later. Uh, the idea here is, on what is up to you, or on what is up to me, my arms are open to offer forgiveness. Now, if I have repentance, which would be another thing, then the full circle of forgiveness would be in place. Does that make sense? Because then I would have back fellowship. But offer to anyone forgiveness. Now, I think this is so nice because after we read all of this, we say, oh yeah, I know. That gentleman there, he took my pen or my time or whatever. Uh, or, you know, that person there, I mean, he used bad words. And we could become bitter about. But then he says this. He gives us this uh, pearl. Forgive one another. Now, I don't want you to think these are like a legalistic uh, list of things that you will wake up in the morning and say, check, 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 check. No. I want you to see this as Paul would present in this book. As the outcome of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, the commands are turning to promises. You see, it will happen. It will flourish because of His Holy Presence in us. So we don't, not, we don't check book. No, no. It will flourish in our lives. Uh, I was speaking about forgiveness recently in a church where we have a friend. David is his name, his wife is uh, Bev, we call it Bev, they lost their daughter. She was a police officer. She was shot and killed. I was talking, I was talking about forgiveness. And at the end of that service, he came to me in tears. And he said, Brother Leandro, I want you to know that I forgave the man who shot and killed my daughter. It was the hardest thing ever. But it was like taking a ton of things from my back. And I gla I'm glad I did. Now you see, that man was punished for his crime. He was not off of the hook for his mistakes. But Brother Dave and his wife Bev had to take this heavy thing from their heart and say, we forgive him. I don't know you, but from time to time, there are people that step on my toes that I have to offer my forgiveness. And I'm sure you have too. I'm going to ask Pastor Dave to come and please uh, pray with us.